Hello, and welcome to another episode of God's Unfolding Promise to Renew the Whole Universe, the official podcast of Grace Lutheran's Confirmation class. This week in Confirmation, or this month I should say, in our Confirmation class, we are tackling Chapter 11 in Dan Erlander's book, Manna and Mercy. We're going to break this chapter into two sessions, and so your reading assignment for this, this time is going to be a little bit less than the full chapter. So begin on page 43, which is the first page of, of chapter 11, and continue through the very top of page 48. At, on page 48, you'll also see a number, a large number two, an abundant manna for all. That is where you can kind of stop reading. We'll cover that next time. So really what we are covering is sort of the introduction to the chapter and then abundant mercy for all. And we will hit the, the abundant manna for all in next month's class. Last time when we met, you may recall that we talked about the birth of Jesus. And we talked that Matthew and Luke had different stories about how that birth happened. And for different reasons. And that they used those birth stories really to kind of expound and to emphasize certain themes and points that they feel are very important for understanding who Jesus is and what God is doing in and through Jesus. This week, we have Jesus preaching in the synagogue. In other words, he is fully grown. There are very few stories about Jesus' youth. There is one from the Gospel of Luke, which has, I think, Jesus in the synagogue when he was 12, and his parents can't find him. And then when they do find him, they try to scold him, and there's kind of a strange dialogue saying, but I am with my family, implying that somehow his father and mother are, are no longer part of his family. It is a story that comes from the uh, probably the creative mind of Luke, and not one that can be considered to be historically accurate. And then once again, we have Luke using that particular story to emphasize some important points and some of the conflict that Jesus' mission is going to bring into this world. And again today, we see that conflict appear once again in this week's readings. Dan has us begin with Luke 4, chapter 4, and I think he starts with verse 10. We're going to start a little bit later, and I'm going to read that. But really, this section of Luke's Gospel is the beginning of Jesus' uh, Galilean ministry, his, his ministry as a whole, and it sets forth his vision statement in a relatively concise, compact way. Now, that conciseness is maybe a little bit deceptive, but let me read the passage first, and then we'll come back and talk briefly about what is actually going on. So we have Jesus uh, coming to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. This is where Jesus is really from. Uh, remember in Luke's Gospel, they, Mary and Joseph come from Nazareth to Bethlehem, where he was born for the census. It's not mentioned, but I think it can be expected that he then travel, they then travel back to Nazareth because that is their home. 
And where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. So here we have Jesus being following the Jewish practice of going to service on Sabbath. And Sabbath really begins, so this would probably be a Friday evening, not a Saturday, but a Friday evening before sunset or kind of at sunset. And he stands up to read. And only adults yet could were allowed to read. Later tradition brings in the idea, of, and perhaps you've had a friend or have heard of things of, of bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, mitzvah, depending on who was being mitzvahed. Essentially, it's after that happens that the people can then read the scrolls. It's, think of it kind of like as a Jewish confirmation. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, which would have been kind of the appointed reading, just like we have appointed readings for our Sunday morning worship. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So this is from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? So here we have kind of the positive reaction to Jesus' mission statement. And from their perspective, it would have made perfect sense for them, for them to see this as a good thing. Because when we talk about what Jesus is setting forth as his mission statement, this this passage from Isaiah, I think they would have, an audience in Galilee would have seen themselves as being part of that. Uh, and those who have been following Jesus, like us as readers, know that Jesus had already been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. At his baptism, he comes up out of the water, and a dove, the Spirit, descends upon him, and we hear the words of God say, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. So that part has already happened from, in terms of Luke's story. And be, as a result of that, he is to bring good news to the poor. And when we think of poverty in our world, we have a tendency to think of it maybe a little differently. Uh, oftentimes it comes with a sense of judgment. If you are poor, it is, it, maybe for you as uh, youth, it's not their fault, but maybe the, on the parents, you know, that they're lazy or they didn't work hard enough or whatever. It's hard to know exactly what the attitude towards the poor were in the, in the ancient world, but it would have had a lot of those kinds of connotations, except in a more culturally appropriate form. So in other words, if you were poor in the ancient world, it was because you weren't being blessed by the gods. Or you you were not of outstanding enough character. Um, and basically it was a way for those who were on the upper echelons, which would have been very, very few of that ancient society. We're talking kind of the senatorial class and the equitous class. 
within Roman society, which l less than 10% of the population most likely, and, and really even less kind of in this Galilee-Judea region, the region in which Jesus lived, because none of them, or very few of them, would have been eligible for Roman citizenship at this time especially. Um, and so they go up. And so those who were poor were left out. They were kind of left on the margins. They were not considered necessarily to be fully um, worthy of the same kind of laws and considerations that those who were citizens or those who were in the senators and equities deserved. And the same thing with ideas of honor. So it had economic implications, but it also had social implications in that they were left out of kind of the inner circle of the establishment of places of any kind of place of power or say. He is also to proclaim release to the captives. Again, when we think of captives, if we think of prisons, we think most people have been put in prison justly. In other words, they have committed a crime, and now they are doing their time as recompense for that crime. Whether that is a, you know, a felony, or whether that is a, something less severe. So, I mean, if you rob a bank, you can expect, when caught, to find yourself in prison for a number of years. Uh, same thing, you know, like if you kill somebody, etc. In the ancient world, there were kind of fewer crimes. There were no police forces. There weren't necessarily fewer crimes. There were fewer arrests for crimes because there were no police forces. Uh, a lot of crimes carried kind of a capital punishment because they didn't have an elaborate prison system. There weren't jails in every town to throw people into. And so if somebody stole something, uh, you were left with, they could either kind of return it and maybe pay a penalty on top of it. They could be exiled, or in some cases, they were just killed. It was kind of capital punishment, or maybe they were maimed in some way. So it was a much harsher system. Those who were kind of held captive uh, would have been people who maybe sold themselves into slavery. Uh, or had defaulted on loans, and in that agrarian society, it was common for for tenant farmers to default on their loans because they were dependent upon loans in order to sort of plant their crop, to get the seed, to get the tools and equipment that they needed, any kind of labor, which usually came from the house, and then if a drought or a poor season comes along, or locusts, or weeds, or what, what have you, come and reduce the harvest from that year's crop, well, now you find yourselves in debt. And in debt probably to a absentee landlord who can then, after a year or two, essentially say, hey, you know what? You're off this land. I'm taking my land back. And off you go. So that they essentially gain more of their... They increase their property holdings at the expense of others, especially if they end up being held captive, etc. Recovery of sight to the blind. Uh, blindness was, uh, again, more common, I think, in the ancient days than it is now. And 
and in many ways, me as a fairly nearsighted person may have also been considered to have been blind in that ancient world, even though with glasses I can see uh, perfectly fine for the most part. Um, but blindness would also have kept people from participating fully within society. They would have been seen that blindness oftentimes was seen as being either the result as we kind of get in an episode of John's Gospel, which we might get to later on in Man and Mercy, but where they're passing a blind person and the disciples ask Jesus, was it this man who sinned or his parents that sinned that caused him to be blind? There was, again, kind of that a very, there was a sense of retribution applied to some of these cases. And by so doing, it would keep people out of kind of the, the social circles of the day. It was a way to essentially guarantee power for those who were on the upper echelons. Because if you were blind, that meant that you could not serve in certain offices, or that, you know, there was something wrong with you besides just your blindness. If you were physically deformed, there was something wrong with your character, with your understanding of the world, with who you were and the and your worth as a human being. And the same thing, and set those who are oppressed free. Uh, those who would have been oppressed would have been all of those in that synagogue who would have heard Jesus' words. So on one hand, they are perhaps expecting Jesus to lead kind of a, a revolt against Rome. Now that's not what Jesus does. Jesus does something much different. And here's one of the ways that Jesus differs from the ways of Rome. And that Rome conquered other nations to bring about peace. So there were barbarians, or who they considered to be barbarians, at the edges of their empire. The way to essentially bring an end to that conflict was to conquer those people and to incorporate them into the provincial system which was essentially how Judea was incorporated. It had been conquered by Rome, had been reconquered by the Parthenian Empire, and then when Rome got the upper hand of Parth the Parthia, they put their person, their king, on the throne in Judea so that, it, so that he was now a client king beholden to Roman power. What Jesus' idea, or the way that Jesus sort of revolts against Rome is in a radically different way. Because what I think what God understands and what God is doing in and through Jesus is that essentially by replacing Rome with sort of Jesus or with the Jewish people is just going to continue that same cycle. Just like we have already seen where where the Greeks originally conquered Judea, Rome's then conquered the Greeks and got Judea, the Parthenians conquered, were able to beat Rome, at least for the moment, and regained Judea, and then Rome went and reconquered Judea and placed their person in, and it was just one continual cycle. And then when the, the Judeans decided they didn't want Rome anymore, they went and revolted, only Rome didn't fall, they essentially wiped out the Judean forces that were sent against them. And in the process, 
not just the soldier side, but many across the landscape as commerce, as trade, as food, as disease, all part of ancient warfare decimated kind of that countryside and essentially gained absolutely nothing. Instead, Jesus' revolt centers around this idea of mercy. And we'll get into that and more in class, especially since I want to pick just a little bit of a bone with how Dan Erlander presents sort of the people's objection to uh, to Jesus' proclamation within that synagogue and how he uses the stories of Elisha and Elisha. But in so doing, we'll gain a better understanding of seeing what it is and what this kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims means. And why, perhaps, people wanted to get rid of Jesus on the cross. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you in class. Or if not, we'll see you again soon.